It says there in Matthew 19, 16, and behold, one came and said unto him, good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into eternal life, or into life, I should say, keep the commandments. And he said unto him, which? And Jesus said, thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, all these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Now, if you'll pause there, we have here the story that we often call the, the story of the rich young ruler. And it's interesting because we learn about this guy, the rich young ruler from the, the three of the four gospels, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this guy coming and asking Jesus this question. We know he's rich we, uh, and he's young. In fact, Matthew 19 here in two places describes him as a young man. In verse 20 and verse 22, we'll see uh, as we keep going here, but he's young. Mark chapter 10 and Luke chapter 18 all talk about this. And we learn that he's a ruler uh, in Luke chapter 18, verse 18. And we find out he's rich both here in Matthew, but also in Luke, it talks about how he was very, very rich, wealthy. And it's interesting because you think, man, here's a, here's a guy who's got it pretty dialed in. Especially if you kind of think of it in terms of our culture and the, what we think is important. Rich, young, ruler. All of those things we esteem in our culture. A lot of people in our culture, they think it's all about being rich. More, the more money you have, the more happy you'll be. That's what we think. Even though there's plenty of evidence that shows that rich people are largely miserable. Um, it's an interesting thing that we all think it'll bring us to delirious happiness to have wealth and lots of money, but the people that have lots of money, they've got nothing but trouble. Just ask Elon right now, how's he doing? And others, uh, Donald Trump, you know, some of the richer guys in the world, you kind of, how do you feel about that? And, and how's it working out? Are you just delirious with joy and happiness because of your wealth? Well, it sure doesn't seem so. Um, it was a philosopher who knew this. In fact, one of the fun stories of history Diogenes of Sinope. Who's Diogenes of Sinope? Well, he was one of those philosophers kind of in the vein of Socrates and Plato and all that stuff. But Diogenes of Sinope uh, delivered one of the greatest punchlines in all of history when he said, stand a little out of my son. You say, Brett, that's not impressive. Stand a little out of my son. What, what was he saying? Well, it's, there's a little more to the story it's not just that he said, stand a little out of my son. It's who he said it to. He said it to none other than Alexander the Great, who was standing right in front of him. Why did he say to Alexander the Great, stand a little out of my son? Well, this is where it gets even funnier. Alexander the Great um, came to uh, give Diogenes whatever, he wanted to fulfill whatever wish Diogenes had, I will give you whatever you wish for, I will do that. Now, by the way, if you didn't know, Alexander the Great's good for it. Like if he asked for $10 million, he could have done that. Or a kingdom, he could have done that. A princess, he could have done that. Like Alexander could have done whatever. He said, Diogenes, I wanna give you whatever wish you want. And what Diogenes said was right then, stand a little out of my son, that's what I want. What do you mean? Well, as the story goes, Diogenes was sitting outside. It was a nice sunny day. And he was sitting just taking in the sun when Alexander the Great comes and stands and blocks the sun. 
You know, he's just getting a tan out there. And Alexander stands, he says, I'll give you one wish. And he says, whatever you want. He says, stand a little out of my son. That's what I'm asking for. Um, which is kind of an insulting kind of thing to say, but it was also, it was also this philosopher saying, I don't need anything except for sun and peace. Give me a little sun and peace. Kind of what a lot of us in Portland would like to have. Uh, the same thing, really, sun and peace. Uh, but, but all that to say, what a profound thing. He could have had whatever he wanted, but he chose, just get out of my son, man. Um, I, I think that's a funny story because not very many people are that, at that much, that level, I should say, of peace about their wealth. We're sure if somebody came up, if, you know, Bezos or Elon or, or you know, uh, one of these guys came up and said, I will give you whatever you want. I'll take a yacht. Uh, you know, 200 foot yacht with a captain and all the food you can eat for the next 20 years. Yeah, there we go. That's what I wish for. Like we all think that that would make us happy or whatever. But uh, as it turns out, history has proven that doesn't work. But this guy, he was rich, but he was also young. Man, that's something our culture covets. In fact, many of your New Year's resolutions are gonna be around that one, trying to keep yourself young and healthy. Uh, and, and younger, and, and, and you're gonna go into the gym and try to keep looking younger and in shape, even though gravity does kick in and history has proven that everybody gets old and dies, even though we're fighting against that desperately. You know, today's culture, we're obsessed with looking, acting young. It's, it's almost di difficult to believe that our forefathers, back during the revolutionary times, um, they used to wear the gray wigs and they'd powder them with white powder to make them uh, uh, even more white. And the reason they wore those wigs was to appear older and wiser. Um, and being old was in back in those days. But today, we use hair dye to give us, you know, that that fake looking, uh, you know, especially men. Have you ever noticed that men, when they dye their, I, I've just chosen to be gray since I was 18, you know? Uh, and I, the reason I've never dyed my hair is because sometimes it just comes off a little too inky. I'm just gonna tell you guys, I'm giving you guys a free uh, freebie here for you. Just go gray, it's wisdom. Uh, used to be celebrated. <laughs> but um, from hair dyes to Botox, uh, to wrinkle creams, to plethora of surgeries you can have to try to make yourself look older or younger and more in shape. Um, the race is on to be forever young. That's our culture that we live in. And so we can't even close our mouths now because of Botox. They're like, hey, I, I'm trying, I look really young. It's like, no, you just look a little weird. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, it's just the truth. Um, rich, young, but he was also a ruler. Um, you might say influencer. He was someone who was in charge of people. Now, what kind of a ruler was he? We don't know for sure, but we can kind of guess. Um, he was probably not a Roman because of him asking Jesus, calling him good master or good teacher. He, he, a Roman would have addressed Jesus that way very likely, but this was a very Jewish thing to say, good master or rabbi teacher or whatever. This is what a Jewish guy. So if he was a ruler among the Jews, he was either you know, a member of the Sanhedrin or perhaps even an official in the local synagogue as a, a ruler of the synagogue maybe is, is, could be. So he was a guy of influence, which man, that's what people want today to be influencers and to leave a legacy and have people that they're in charge of and stuff like that. And it's funny because all of these things are things that people tend to make New Year's resolutions about. Their wealth, getting in shape, wealth, health, and influence. By the way, according to Statista, <clears throat> they, uh, they kind of showed what the top resolutions for Americans of 2023 are. And the, always the top one is exercise more. 52% um, uh, 
want to exercise more. 50% want to eat healthier. 40% want to lose weight. Um, and then, then the next one kind of fits into the rich part, save more money. Uh, the last one, reduce spending on limit, uh, lim- limiting expenses. Um, this, is, this is dealing with stuff. There's some nice things like spend more time with friends and family, spend less time on social media. Those are good, good goals. But <clears throat> the top ones almost always have to do with being healthy, wealthy, and younger, and in shape, and stuff like that. But I, I gotta say, as good as those things might be, um, one of the things we have to remember is 10 out of every 10 people die. The statistics on death are shocking. Um, and you all are gonna get older. Um, so what really matters more than this stuff is your eternal uh, existence. And that's what this rich young ruler is concerned about. Um, and, and we gotta look at this guy and what he says, and we gotta do a little d- a deeper dig to find out <clears throat> what's going on here. And, and when I hear this guy, if you're a Bible uh, student and you like to study the scriptures, there's already some red flags about what this guy's asking, if you know what I mean. For example, when you look at our, our text here, he starts out by saying, good master. Now, some of you might say, well, that's, that's a nice thing to call Jesus, but is it? The word master, the Greek word for that is an interesting word. It's didaskalos in the Greek, which means teacher. Good teacher, he's, is what he's saying. Good teacher, good teacher. What do I need to do? you know, to inherit eternal life or what, what good deed do I need to do? See, the first red flag I have is him calling good teacher. The word master is probably a poor translation for modern English. We don't really use that word master in the same way they did back in 1611. But um, the word teacher is more what he said, good teacher. And by the way, that's what a lot of people think of Jesus. When somebody calls Jesus today a good teacher, that's usually a, a dead giveaway that they don't know Jesus. What do you mean, Brett? Well, Oprah Winfrey says, well, Jesus was a good teacher. Did you hear, I showed a clip of Elon Musk being interviewed by the Babylon Bee guys. Remember when they said, well, what do you think about Jesus? And he said, well, I think Jesus was a good teacher. You see, the reason that's a red flag for us as Christians is Jesus was not a good teacher. He was either God in the flesh, which is much more than just a good teacher. He's Emmanuel, God with us. God became a man, that's Jesus. He's not just a good teacher, he's God. But if he was not God, he's not a good teacher because he taught people that he was God. Do you see the problem there? There's no way he's just a good teacher. It's, it's, a, it's an impossibility. He was either a horrible teacher and a liar or a lunatic. Speaking of Oprah saying Jesus was a good teacher and Elon Musk saying Jesus was a good teacher, it was Bono of U2, the, the singer, who said, um, he, he actually made the comment, and I showed you the snippet a few weeks back. He said, he's either God or he's a nutter, as a good Irish guy would say. Remember that? And, and, and then he went on to say, and I think he's God in the flesh, which is an amazing thing because here's a guy who you kind of wouldn't imagine, but saying, yeah, Jesus was God in the flesh. Anybody saying Jesus is a good, just a good teacher is actually kind of what we call blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's denying that Jesus is God in the flesh. So this rich young ruler starts off with a very falling short calling him good teacher. And this starts to help us understand why Jesus responded in the way that he did. In the red letters that follow uh, there in verse 17, that's why Jesus, why callest thou me good? Um, Now was Jesus saying that he wasn't good? No. But Jesus is saying something that's actually gonna get to the key issue of this whole story of, of who is Jesus? Was he just a good teacher? Because then Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. 
Now, you and I know the rest of the story. If you know the Bible, Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. So Jesus is saying, no one's good except for God, hello. And he's, and, and he's giving this rich young ruler a chance to say, well, like Peter said in Matthew chapter 16, you're the Christos, the son of the living God, to make the declaration of believing that Jesus was God. You see, this is important. In John 14, nine, Jesus said, he that has seen me has seen the father. He says this to Philip. <clears throat> and he says, how do you ask me to show you the father? If you've seen me, you've seen the father. He said there in John 14, nine. And then probably most classic, John chapter 10, verse 30 through 33, Jesus declared, I and my father are one. Now there are some people who are off base who say, well, Jesus was claiming to be tight with God, not God, but he was like tight and unified with God the Father. No, read the rest of the story. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered, many good works have I showed you from my father. For which one of those works do you stone me? And the Jews answered him saying, for a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy because that, that thou being a man makest thyself God. That's why they were gonna stone him to death because they said, you're making yourself equal to God, which Jesus was doing that because he was God in the flesh, Emmanuel. So, so interesting, this guy says, good teacher. And he says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And we know Jesus is God in the flesh. So, so he's giving this guy an opportunity to acknowledge who Jesus really is. That's an important part of the story. But all that to say, Jesus was not just simply a good teacher. He is God in the flesh. And that should be a red flag when somebody says, oh, Jesus was a good teacher or a good prophet or a nice guy. Um, no, Jesus was God in the flesh. That's an important part of understanding who Jesus is and a part of salvation, accepting Jesus as your savior, who is God, who died on the cross for the sins of the world. That's the first red flag, good teacher, red flag. But the second red flag is what he said in verse 16. He says, what good thing shall I do that I might have eternal life? And the question I might ask you guys, what good thing should the rich young ruler do that he might have eternal life? Well, as we know from the rest of the Bible, if you read the Bible, there's nothing you can do. Uh, you and I are sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, not even one. And there's nothing you can do to save yourself. Um, so this guy is sort of a moralist. He's thinking, I'm generally a good person. What's left for me to do? Out of all the things I need to do, what is left for me as a moralist to do that I might have eternal life? Um, some good deed that I can <coughs> sort of earn my way to heaven. Um, how many of us know people like this that somehow think because of their good deeds, they're gonna make it to heaven? Or hopefully they're good you know, outweighs their bad. That's kind of the way some people look at it. And that's the way people were raised, even taught in various traditions and what have you. But that's not the way it works. Um, and, 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 and some people kind of do it by measuring themselves against other people. Well, I'm, at least I'm not as bad as those people. Or I'm better than that group over there. But comparing yourself with one another is always a big goof. Um, what deed can you do to earn salvation? I remember watching, uh, do you guys remember Larry King live there? Um, it's kind of an interesting thing because when I was a kid, I was watching Larry King and I, I remember watching this one pastor. And I, and I always watch these pastors with a little bit of skepticism because most of the people that are on these talk shows, the pastors are uh, lacking in their biblical knowledge. It's kind of shocking actually. 
So this pastor's there and Larry King who was raised Jewish. Um, he asked, is there, is there any way to heaven except through Jesus? Larry King asked the pastor and the pastor answered, yes. And I thought, uh-oh, here we go. Another Looney Tune pastor on Larry King Live. Um, he said, yes, there is another way. And he said, here's what you need to do. And he looked Larry King right in the eye and I said, you've got to keep every single law and every single commandment in the Old Testament, the law of Moses. You've got to do that with, without one mistake your whole life. And I thought, well, maybe this guy is kind of squared away because that's true. Um, now, you that are Bible readers, if you don't do that, if, if you keep all the commandments, but you mess up on one, how many of the laws have you broken? All of them. That's what the Bible says. If you've even broken one, you're guilty of the whole enchilada. Um, that's the way the Bible teaches it. So this pastor was right. Yeah, Larry King, if you keep, and it's kind of appropriate that he's a Jew, and he says, yeah, you keep your Jewish Bible. Uh, and, and let me remind you, does anybody remember how many laws are there given to the Jews to keep the law? 613, I brought my law wall with me again, <laughs> just in case you don't have it memorized yet. Those are the 613 laws uh, that the Bible gives to the Jews <laughs> and, uh, and that's what they're supposed to keep. And the Bible says, yeah, good luck. Um, now you say, well, Brad, if nobody can ever keep the law and nobody ever was saved by the law, the Bible declares that, then what's the point of the law? Well, Galatians teaches us that this law serves a purpose and it, it's the law that drives you to a desperate place where you think, I can't do it. I need help. And that's where Jesus comes in. Because with, with yourself and your ability, it's impossible. And that's where we're gonna ultimately get to with this rich young ruler. It's almost like this rich young ruler, he's, he's saying, what is the thing I need to do? In fact, look at this, is funny to me. Jesus says uh, in verse 17, um, there's no one good but God, but if you wanna enter into life, keep the commandments. And in this Jewish mind of this guy, the rich young ruler, he's thinking of this wall right here. And that's why he says, which? Like, who, which one of these? Uh, and it's kind of funny, because I, I, I think, man, I, I wonder, well, I've done all these. I've been trying to be a good Jewish boy all my life. Which one? And then Jesus starts quoting from Exodus chapter 20, which is not these laws, but he, see, there's the law of Moses, which is this that I'm showing you right here, Leviticus laws of priesthood and rules of worship and all that stuff, it's all in this list. But there's something we also call the law of God, which is the 10 commandments. And that's where Jesus starts going to. Now I wonder what this guy's thinking. Oh, he's going to the 10 commandments. But Jesus answers here, quoting from Exodus 20, but he does something that's kind of interesting. Before we get into this, uh, when Jesus goes to Exodus 20, um, you, let me ask you this question. Do you think Jesus knew the order of the 10 commandments? You guys are making me nervous. <laughs> Yeah, some of you are like, yes, uh, all five of you. Okay, yeah, last service, everybody said, Jesus knows the order. So um, maybe you guys didn't get enough sleep last night. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, Jesus knows the order, but Jesus does something where he sort of, and, and forgive me for even saying this, but, but Jesus sort of dances around the 10 commandments. I think he does that on purpose, and I'll show you why here in a second. Um, he, he doesn't start with the first of the commandments, but he starts with commandment number six. Now, by the way, for you guys, when, when Moses was carrying the 10 commandments, you picture five on one, five on the other, but that's not the way it was. It was the first four commandments on the first table of stone, and it was uh, number five through 10 on the, the second table of stone. 
And you say, okay, Brad, what's the point of that? Well, it's interesting because the first four commandments are about our relationship to God. And the, the last uh, six commandments were how we're supposed to treat one another. And so Jesus starts in that second half, but not with the first one. He starts with number six. And, and he says this in our text. He says um, in verse uh, 18, thou shalt do no murder. That's commandment number six. Why did Jesus start on the sixth commandment? And then um, he just keeps going. He, after saying thou shalt do no murder, commandment number six, then he says commandment number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. Commandment number eight, thou shalt not steal. Commandment number nine, thou shalt not bear false witness. So far he goes from six, seven, eight, nine. Then he skips commandment number 10 and goes back to commandment number five. And that's where he says, honor your father and mother. So you say, Brett, what's the point? I don't know, but you tell me. Why did Jesus skip commandment 10 and go in that order? because that's not the order of the 10 commandments. Why did he do that? Well, I think it has to do with what this guy's problem really was. Jesus knew what this guy's problem was. And there's an interesting thing that the linguistic Greek scholars point out to us that we kind of miss this in the English text here, but most scholars agree that the rich young ruler actually interrupts Jesus here as Jesus is going through the simple little 10 commandments. It's almost like the, the rich young is like, yeah, 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 I got all those. Uh, where did he interrupt? It's when Jesus says, honor your father and mother, verse 19, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And the young man saith unto him, all these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? This is where scholars believe he actually interrupts Jesus. Yeah, 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 I've got all that stuff. Now, the funny thing is, so far Jesus has covered all of the last part of the 10 commandments except for commandment number 10. Does anybody remember what commandment number 10 is? Thou shalt not covet. Hmm. Now we're getting somewhere with this guy's problem. I almost wonder if Jesus is like giving him all the ones he can check the box. Yeah, 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 I got that one. Yeah, 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 check, 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 check. And finally Jesus, he's almost getting, and then he interrupts him and says, yeah, 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 I've done all this stuff. And Jesus is now gonna call him out where he needs to be uh, sort of understanding the problem. And that's where we pick it up in verse 21. And Jesus said unto him, if thou will be perfect, go and sell that thou hast and give to the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Wow. This guy realizes that Jesus speaks right into his problem. That is covetousness. He was into having stuff. He had lots of stuff. He had great possessions. And it was that very problem that would keep him from eternal life. How did it keep him from eternal life? Because he wasn't gonna turn and follow Jesus. He would rather follow his stuff than, than to follow Jesus. And by the way, the disciples are listening to all this and we're gonna read in verse 25 that they're amazed saying, who's gonna be saved? If this is the case, like who's gonna be saved? Which is kind of interesting. It raises the question, um, uh, what about the wealthy American? It's interesting because um, no matter how much wealth the rich young ruler had in the first century during this story, um, he never rode in an automobile he never had surgery or was able to turn on a light switch or play an electric guitar, buy penicillin. He was never able to watch TV or wash dishes with a dishwasher or um, mow his lawn or fly in an airplane, uh, sleep on a sleep number mattress, 
Um, he never did any of that stuff. Uh, and you say, well, Brad, good for him. Never able to talk on a cell phone. And if he was rich, then what are we? What are you? It makes me kind of wonder a little bit like, oh man, are we kind of being talked about in this story? Now here's where a sermon can go off the rails a little bit. And there have been sermons preached. There were pastors in times past, and because of this, if you wanna be perfect, you need to sell all your possessions and live in poverty and serve Jesus and follow him. Um, and there's been people who've done that. Uh, it's kind of interesting. In fact, this guy here, um, he's called by several names, Anthony of Egypt, but um, maybe most famously called Anthony the Hermit. Uh, who is this guy? Well, Anthony was born to well-to-do Egyptian parents um, <clears throat> who died in like, you know, 300 uh, AD-ish, uh, very early in the Christian church era. And when they, when they died, when he was 20, he inherited all their wealth and they were crazy level wealthy. Um, but then he experienced kind of a spiritual crisis when he heard a sermon on Jesus's command to the rich young ruler, if you will be perfect, go and sell all that you have and give it all to the poor. And that's exactly what Anthony the Hermit did. He sold all of his great wealth and gave all the money to the poor, lived a simple life of sleeping on the ground, uh, existing one meal a day, a piece of bread and water he ate with a little salt uh, every day for the rest of his life. He lived for decades in abandoned, uh, this old fort that was a fallen down fort. Uh, and he just slept in the dirt, seeing no one. But over time, people were curious, who's this hermit living in the fortress? And people would come from all over to try to get a glimpse of, you know, Anthony the hermit living in the fortress. <laughs> but Christianity started becoming sort of worldly and materialistic. And so people were drawn to this guy and they thought there was some kind of a purity of faith, a purer version of Christianity that people were kind of hungering for by watching this guy. And after he died, shortly after his death, somebody wrote uh, and, and passed out sort of a, a biography, widely circulated about this guy. And it attracted even more people to become desert hermits. <clears throat> Some people call this guy one of the first of the true monks who set aside his life for, for the Lord. Interesting, you know, the average lifespan back then was like 47 years old or whatever. Um, but this guy lived to be 105 years old uh, with gluten and water. Um, <laughs> just kind of funny. Um, and salt. Um, 105, uh, this guy, Anthony the Hermit. Now you say, well, Brett, are we supposed to sell all our possessions and give them to the poor? Is that your challenge for the new year? Um, no, I do believe that there's possible that some people, maybe even in this room or listening online, there might be some of you who need to do that. If that's your problem, if that's the thing that keeps you from being saved, it'd be better for you to sell all your possessions, give to the poor and live in poverty, but go to heaven and follow Jesus than to keep your wealth instead of Jesus. There's some people that have kind of an on or off on that one. And if that's you, uh, then maybe you should hear the words of Jesus that he told this rich young ruler. But it's clear to me that that's not for everyone because there, everybody else in the story, even Peter had a house and a wife and a mother-in-law and had stuff. They, they had possessions, um, but they didn't give everything uh, like, the, like the Jesus was calling the rich young ruler. Even one of the wealthiest guys in the early church was a guy named Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy man who gave his tomb 
for the purpose of Jesus's burial. And that's, that's a guy who didn't sell all his possessions, but he was benevolent and was a follower of Jesus. So, so maybe some are called to sell and give it all, but not everyone's called to that. Just an FYI, um, if you ever feel that sermon, uh, you gotta kind of ask, Lord, is that for me? But all that to say, it wasn't about the money. It was about this guy's desire to have it and his self-sufficiency in that. He, he, he felt like he could check all the boxes. You know, I've done all these things, but the one problem he had was that he had too much stuff and wasn't willing to give it up. He didn't felt that, feel like he even really needed to follow Jesus. Although you can tell he felt that he needed because he left away sorrowful. In fact, one of the other stories say that he went away weeping because he, he couldn't give away his stuff. That's the problem, by the way, with us as Americans that are rich. Because we have a lot of stuff, that can be, if we're not careful, something that blocks our walk with Christ and our, our willingness to follow Jesus. We're, we're more into our healthy, wealthy, power, influencer. We're into all that stuff, and it, it can get in the way, even block the salvation that a person needs. Sometimes being wealthy is harder. Um, there's a story called One Expensive Pearl, and it's kind of an allegory of the Lord's jewelry store that had thousands of beautiful gems on display. Some were reasonably, reasonably priced, others were very expensive, but one pearl was the most expensive thing in the store. It was in a sewn case under lock and key on display. And it was, it was interesting because people would come in and not even ask how much it was because it was obviously too expensive. But once in a while, a really wealthy guy would walk in, how much is the pearl? And the store owner always had the same answer for everyone. The owner of the store would always answer, it will cost you everything you own. If you give everything you own, then this is your pearl. And people would just say, high price indeed, and walk away, sort of laugh and scoff. But um, most collectors would go away disappointed, realizing the cost was simply too high. But one day a homeless man on a rainy day comes in with his little shopping cart and his possessions in the shopping cart and it's cold. He just wants to warm himself. And some of the people are like, oh, get this homeless guy out of here, whatever. But the homeless guy takes a look at that pearl. And he says, wow, that's amazing. And he asked the store owner, he said, man, how much is this? And the store owner said the same thing that he sold everybody else. It'll cost you everything you own. The guy looked at the pearl and looked at the owner and took off his jacket and threw it in the shopping cart, rolled the cart over to the owner and said, well, that's everything I own. And without the slightest hesitation, the jeweler unlocked the case and presented the magnificent pearl to his new owner. That's the story. And it starts to echo really what Jesus is gonna teach us here in the rest of this part of this chapter. That sometimes if you have the stuff, that's the thing that keeps you from the prize, the, the blessing. It's almost like you have to realize uh, that losing your life is how you gain life. Um, but if you have a lot of stuff, that could be the thing that keeps you from doing that. And that's why Jesus starts to um, you know, deal with this with the disciples. He's gonna turn aside and give them further instruction. And it's like to whom much is given, much is required. Luke 12, 48 tells us. And it's interesting because I've seen this in my travels as I've gone around the world. Uh, in my younger years, I got to go to a lot of third world countries. Um, and one of the things I've noticed in third world countries where there's a lot of poverty is I've noticed joy and a real passion and a sincerity in worship and seeking the Lord like no other. It's an amazing thing. They, their prayers have a reality to them. Their worship has an intensity to it because that's all they have. Um, 
You know, the Lord is not as much asking us to sell all our stuff, but the thing we have to remember is how much we need him. And sometimes that's my concern is we don't understand that we need Christ because, well, this is what we start to see in verses 23 through 26. Let's see what he says to the disciples. In verse 23, Jesus said unto his disciples, verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And when his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed saying, who can be saved? Now this is where I think Jesus wants us. At this last phrase where the disciples are like, well then who can be saved? How does anybody get to heaven? That's the right question right there. Um, and you might be feeling that right now, but this is an interesting thing. Who can be saved? But he, Jesus finishes any sort of pressure relief right here. Verse 26, then Jesus beheld them. That means he looked intently upon them. And then he said, with men, this is impossible. What's impossible? How men can be saved? It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. I love the way this story kind of wraps up. With God, all things are possible. The rich young ruler, he's a demonstration of how hard it is to be wealthy and make it into heaven because the, the stuff, he wasn't willing to give up the stuff for following after Jesus. And, and this guy, the disciples are like, oh man, who can be saved? And then Jesus says, that's impossible with man. But with God, all things are possible. And this is where we start to get to the same thing as the Sermon on the Mount. Remember a, a few months back when we were on the Sermon on the Mount? And it's an amazing study when you go through the Sermon on the Mount because basically you realize how impossible it is. Um, I, I always refer to the old guys as, I just live by the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm like, no, you don't. Nobody lives by the Sermon on the Mount. It's impossible. Um, you will die if you live by the Sermon on the Mount and you'll go to hell too. Um, because Jesus, you know, if you didn't like the 613 laws on the wall, Jesus even expanded on those. And like, remember the adultery one? Then Jesus said on a Sermon on the Mount, he said, if a man even looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he's guilty of adultery. Whew. Or if you're angry at your brother, um, then you're guilty of murder. If you call a, a, you know, your brother fool or raka, you're guilty of death. Like, and pretty soon you hear the Sermon on the Mount. And what I love about the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus doesn't even really give the solution. Um, you know, this is something in our culture we miss because it doesn't mean as much to us. But Jesus said something that would have blown him all away back in those days when he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. The people would just like, huh, whatever then. Because the, the Pharisees were crazy level or perceived as crazy level righteous. Remember they would sit around in public with their spices of pepper and herbs and they would divide them out to make sure they were giving one tenth. Okay, one piece of pepper for God, nine pieces of pepper for me. One people, and they just go through their cumin and their mint and their rue and all these other you know, spices to make sure they were tithing exactly. That's how righteous you had to be. And the people would just say, well, then who could be saved? And Jesus doesn't give the answer in his sermon, the answer, the reason why, because he is the answer to the sermon. Jesus is the answer. Nobody is righteous enough to, to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So it leaves you and I where the disciples are in this story. Well, then who can be saved? And then Jesus gives us the punchline. He says, with man, that's impossible. Yeah, you're right. Nobody can be saved. But with God, 
suddenly all things become possible. And I love this analogy because of the impossibility of it. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, for years, I've always thought, how do you get an, a camel through the eye of the needle? And, and I, I think that's pretty impossible unless you have a blender and a funnel. And it's not so good on the camel, you know what I mean? Now, now, I've been told for years and years that there's a gate in Jerusalem that was called the Eye of the Needle. And I'd, I'd been to Jerusalem many, many times, but I never saw this gate until my last visit to Jerusalem. I was next to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and Debbie and I were there with some Athey Creekers and half the group was eating gelato. And uh, we found this funny little building and the Russian Orthodox Church had it. You know, there's all kinds of churches around Jerusalem and stuff, but this old church and the Russian writing, I asked the guy, the priest out there, you know, now what, ex what exactly is this? And he explained, he said, this is the church of the uh, Eye of the Needle. I said, what are you talking about? I said, well, this is the, the, the Eye of the Needle that Jesus was referring to in Matthew, you know, chapter uh, 19. And I said, can I go see it? He said, for $10. <laughs> so Deb and I and a few eighth degrees gave him 10 bucks and we went down there and I was kind of skeptical. Um, and sure enough, you, now if you're gonna see something in Jesus era in Jerusalem, you have to go down like 30 feet into the strata because of the archeological time, things just got buried. If you're walking on the Via Della Rosa today, that's not actually the street Jesus walked. You have to, you have to dig 30 feet down to get to the first century level. Well, this church, you go down these stairs to, and you can see the ancient wall, the city wall of Jerusalem. And they dug down alongside of the wall and it brought you to a little, little hole in the wall um, that, that they believe was the eye of the needle. And I took a picture of Debbie going through the eye of the, you notice not me going through the eye of the needle um, <laughs> because it was a squeeze for Debbie. Uh, and if it was a squeeze, well, it'd be easier for Brett to go through the eye of the needle than to have a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, but, but this little gate, what, what was the, the purpose of an eye of the needle gate? Well, this little gate, they, 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 they explain it. They say at nighttime, when the sun would go down, they'd close the city gates and nobody could go in or out. You were toast. If you were coming in from the fields, working late, and then the gates were already closed, you were kind of sunk unless you could go through this little eye of the needle. They, they wouldn't open the huge city gates just for one person to come and go because it would put the city at risk but they would let a single person go through this little hole. You'd leave your camel outside and tie him to a palm tree and have to pick him up in the morning. That, that was the way that worked. Now, if an army attacked, it'd be really hard to attack with this little hole. Um, the, the Jews would sit there with bows and arrows and you know, if you tried to go through the hole and you weren't welcome, they would just plug the hole. Uh, that's the way they worked. So the eye of the needle. Now, now, this is what the Russian Orthodox claim. And now, whether it's true or false, I'm not 100% sure, but it is intriguing at, at best. But I have ridden a lot of camels over there in the Middle East. And I'm gonna tell you, even a baby camel, you'd still need a blender and a funnel. So it doesn't matter if we're talking about this gate or if we're talking about the eye of a needle for sewing. Either way, it's gonna be impossible. That's the point. And so it's hyperbole either way. Jesus is kind of using this ridiculous level saying that's how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's impossible. And that's why the disciples say, oh man, who then can be saved? And man, how thankful I am that Jesus says, with man, it is impossible. So uh, Deb and I left that Alexander Nevsky church realizing the eye of the needle could be a literal gate. Uh, it's possible that that could be the one. Now, if you're afraid that you have too many possessions and you won't get to heaven because of, it, because of your wealth, um, 
you're right. It's probably true. We're all doomed in our own strength. But good news, because Jesus is God with us, with God, with Jesus, if you would, all things are possible, including salvation. Salvation to humanity is impossible apart from God. You cannot add to the work of salvation. If you think that you can do something, then you're mistaken. That's the problem with this rich young ruler. What good deed can I do to be saved is what he's asking. And the answer is you can't. There's nothing. And Jesus even calls him out on the one thing that he, because this guy seemingly was squared away. He could check all the boxes except for his wealth. You gotta give it to the rich young ruler. It sounds like he was pretty squared away compared to everybody else. But that's not what you do. You don't compare yourself to everybody else. All of humanity, even the best of us, even the rich young ruler who had all his checked boxes, he was even doomed. And apart from God, there's no salvation. But with God, all things become possible. Would you keep your finger here and go with me to Ephesians chapter two? And we'll kind of conclude with this little section of scripture. Um, and Ephesians two is great because it was written by Paul the apostle who was before Saul the Pharisee. Um, now, remember I told you about the Pharisees? Jesus, unless you're righteous, exceeds that of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees were righteous. And was, was, was Paul considered to be a pretty good Pharisee if you were a Pharisee? Yeah, the Bible says Paul was called the Pharisee of Pharisees. In fact, he was schooled by his tutor, Gamaliel, who was like, it'd be like if you're a math student and you got your PhD being taught by Albert Einstein, same kind of thing. So Paul the apostle was the, or Saul of, of Tarsus was, was the Pharisee of all Pharisees. And then even he realized he was a wretched, miserable sinner and he falls down before Jesus and gets saved. They're on the road to Damascus. But with that in mind, what does Paul write to the church at Ephesus? Here in Ephesians chapter two, verse one. Paul says, and you hath he quickened or made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, spiritually dead, eternal death, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Among whom, verse three, also we all had our conversation or our lifestyles uh, in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. That's the bad news, verses one through three. We're children of death and sin, and even our lifestyle gives us away as wretched, miserable sinners. But I like the next two words in verse four, but God. Those are some good words right there, but God. Because remember, with God, all things become possible. But apart from God, we're, mess, we're messed up, miserable, wretched sinners. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he hath loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened or made alive us together with Christ, by grace are you saved. Verse six, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Now Mark verse eight, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained 
that we should walk in them. He spells it out for us here. We were wretched, miserable sinners headed for eternal death in hell, but God sent his only begotten son to die on the cross for the sins of the world and it's by his grace. Grace is undeserved, unearned merit and favor that God shows to you. You didn't deserve it, you didn't earn it. That's one of the mistakes the rich young ruler was making. What, what do I need to do? Well, it's already done. He, all he needed to do was to follow Jesus and not let anything get in the way of his relationship with Jesus Christ because Jesus is the one who gives us, verse eight, it's by grace you're saved, not of yourselves. This is a mistake many people think, oh, I need to do what I need to do to get to heaven. And of all the things you do in 2023, you can work out, get in shape, you can try to save money, you can be better at this and that and do good works. Those are all good things, I guess. But man, do you understand? Salvation comes by grace through faith alone. And you need to make sure that's in place. And you better make sure, and I need you as well, don't let any of those things get in our way. You see, there's, there's things that we, gotta, we can kind of easily conclude, and it's good New Year's Day advice. Conclusion here of this story, number one, rejoice that with God, all things are possible. That's something to be happy about in 2023. Just rejoice that with, all, with God, all things are possible, especially the one where he can save you from your sins and give you eternal life. That's with God, only with God. You can't do that yourself. It's a gift from God. So verse 26, I've got that marked in my Bible, but with God, all things are possible. So rejoice in that. Number two, don't let your wealth and your health and your influence and power and all the things you crave and desire for 2023 and stuff, don't let those things get in the way or block you following Jesus. Don't be like the rich young ruler that's so into that that you say kind of, yeah, whatever about the Jesus thing. And instead go for those things solely, wealth, health, power, influence. Don't allow anything that keeps you from following Jesus. Make sure 2023 is marked by Jesus following Jesus. Jesus should be the main thing. And also remember that there's nothing good you can do, nothing good enough that will save you. It's only Jesus that will save you. There's, it's impossible for you to save yourself and go to heaven. But good news with God, Jesus being the one to die on the cross for your sins, you can have the hope in the future of heaven. I love that. See, no matter how tough 2023 might be, if you've got that, if you've got salvation and eternal life through Jesus, man, it's all good. Who cares what happens? Even if I lose everything I own, if I have Jesus Christ and the hope of heaven, then I'm good to go. And it really gives us a great outlook. Uh, so many people are approaching 2023 with great fear and trepidation. But as Christians, we approach this year, we should be approaching this year with great hope and anticipation of the, of the time in heaven that we're gonna have. And, and, and even if 2023 is difficult or challenging or whatever comes, we're gonna try to do good. We're gonna try to be the people God's called us to be. But even if we fail in that, good news, we're saved by grace through faith, not of your works, lest any man should boast. I don't know about you, but that's a reason to celebrate a new year. It's like that last song we sing, um, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Um, that's so true. We can face this next year because Jesus Christ saves us from our sins. May the Lord give us ears to hear and learn from this lesson of the rich young ruler in Jesus' name. Let's pray. And Lord, we are thankful for this, this news uh, that's so true, that salvation comes by a gift, nothing we've earned, nothing we deserve, but a free gift to anyone who accepts.
It's so sad to see a story in the Bible of a guy who walks away weeping because he was unwilling to follow Jesus, to give up his thing that he was so into and unwilling to just, just be saved, really. Um, Lord, keep us from those barriers. Keep us from those sins and those things that we hang on to that start to block and even don't even really allow your grace to, to be settled into our lives. I pray that we'd leave that stuff and set it all aside and turn to you. And Lord, we, we know that apart from you, we can do nothing. All things become possible as we follow you. So I pray that this year, 2023, would be full of Jesus. More of you, less of our desires or our goals, less of our dreams and feelings. But Lord, more of you, that's what we want in 2023. For you are the way, the truth, the life. You're the one who gives us the hope of heaven. How thankful we are, Lord. So bless these, your people, on this Sunday morning, this New Year's Day. Lord, I pray that we'd approach this year differently. More of you, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.